Once in a while, this happens to me, and I wonder if any of you can identify with this. I have imaginary conversations. And in in my imaginary conversations, it usually always goes down the same way. There's this crowd of people around me. In my imaginary conversations, I'm never alone. There's always a crowd of people around me. And from out of this crowd comes the person who's hurt me. And I let them have it. I tell them everything they've done to me. I tell them how bad they've hurt me, what they owe me, what they took from me. And if anyone walks into this conversation and they don't know what's going on, they just listen to my story for a minute and they say, Oh, I'd be even madder than you. I'd be furious. I'd never forgive them. Hold this against them forever. And right when that person gets ready to say, I'm sorry, I turn on my heels and I walk away and everybody erupts into clapping and shouting. And when I enter into those kind of conversations imaginary conversations like that, it's a sign there's unforgiveness in my life. And I wonder if anyone here this morning has ever had those kind of imaginary conversations. I I have some of these conversations where they last 15 minutes or one hour or one day. And then there was an imaginary conversation where I was so badly hurt and so badly broken I had the same imaginary conversation for two years. And the world tells us that's okay. You don't need to forgive. It's okay to hold on to that grudge. And it's so appealing, right? I mean, isn't it true that holding holding a grudge feels good? It feels good to get angry sometimes. But it doesn't work. Because when we don't forgive, what happens is that this unforgiveness and anger and bitterness and resentment just seep into our lives. Scientifically, it's been studied that when we allow those things to come into our lives, there are toxins created in our system that can lead to an increased possibility for heart attacks, digestive problems, chronic headaches, marriage breakdowns, depression, and an increased vulnerability to substance abuse. If I asked you, I think we all could think of somebody right now who lives a life full of bitterness and resentment. They make present-day decisions based on something that's happened in their past. They toss and turn at night, and they don't sleep well over something they can't control and they can't change, and they bring a ton of baggage into every relationship they enter. And the truth is, the longer we hold a grudge, the longer the grudge holds us. And the deeper we let that grudge sink in, the deeper that anger and bitterness, and resentment take a hold of our life. And so my prayer today, my prayer is that we'll see how forgiveness breaks the grip of the past and allows us to move forward in freedom. And to do that, we're going to look at a guy in the Bible who forgave. The world would tell us, this guy is not a hero. He is weak. He let people run over him and do whatever they wanted to him. But if you're following in your notes... Stephen was a hero in God's eyes because he forgave. Stephen was a hero in God's eyes because he forgave. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to spend the entire morning in two chapters, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. If you're getting used to your Bible, Acts is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. You'll go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
John and then Acts. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, I, I encourage you to grab a black Bible in the seat rack in front of you. I'd love it if you followed along. Acts chapter 6 can be found on page 762 of that black Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Stephen is an interesting guy. He's only mentioned in 76 verses in the entire Bible, all between Acts 6-1 and Acts 8-2. And so let me set the stage for you of how we're introduced to Stephen. The book of Acts starts, it's written by a guy named Luke, it's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he's recapping that Jesus died on the cross, three days later he rose from the dead, and now he's living among his disciples, and 40 days later he ascends into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And after Jesus ascends to heaven in front of his disciples' eyes, we're told that 120 followers of Jesus are gathered in a room together for 10 days. They're scared out of their mind that they're going to be killed like Jesus was. And 10 days later, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected, we're told there's a day called Pentecost where people are given the Holy Spirit. And on this day, Peter stands up and he teaches on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And 3,000 people join the church in one day. They go from 120 followers of Jesus to 3,120 followers. And as you can imagine, as a church grows, some disagreements come up. And in this case, the disagreement that came up was that Greek widows were not getting as much food as Jewish widows. And so they had to figure out this problem, and that's where we're introduced to Stephen. So if you would, in your notes this morning, in the first gray box, would you read Acts chapter 6, verse 3, and then I'm going to continue reading through verse 8. So let's read this together. It says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I'm going to keep going. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So what they've said is, choose seven people who can make sure the food is divided equally so the disciples can keep teaching God's word to the people. So this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. And so just by reading these few verses, we can learn a few things from Stephen. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower. He was full of faith, he was full of grace, he was full of power, he was full of wisdom. Those attributes are listed. But there's one characteristic that stands out prominently when it comes to Stephen. If you're following in your notes, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. We're told that he was full of the Holy Spirit four times in 76 verses. The Bible writers used repetition to signify importance. So if we're told four times that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit in 76 verses, I want to pay attention to what that means for just a moment. 
Jesus made a promise to us in the Gospel of John, chapter chapter 14, verse 16, when he said this. It's on the screen. Would you read this with me? These are Jesus' words. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. I'm going to have Sarah leave that on the screen for just a second, because where the words say, he will give you another helper. In the original Greek, it says, it means just like. Jesus is saying, when I leave, I will leave someone to help you just like me. Just like me. At the moment we make a decision to follow Jesus, not days later, not months later, not years later. At the moment we make a decision to follow Jesus, we're given the Holy Spirit who helps guide us and lead us and comfort us, convicts us when we've made bad decisions. That's how we know comes across the ticker of your mind, points us in the right direction. And it's interesting in the New Testament, if you're following in your notes, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we're filled with Jesus. Means that we're, we're filled with Jesus. And we read over and over again that Stephen didn't just have the Holy Spirit, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Bible says Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, if you're following in your notes, full of the Holy Spirit means to be under the influence. It means to be under the influence or the control of. It means being influenced by Jesus in our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, our words. It's allowing Jesus to live his life through us. And that's what Stephen was doing. Have you ever noticed in your life that this is not as easy as it sounds? I mean, I can be a follower of Jesus, but not every decision I make is under the influence of Jesus. I can have the Holy Spirit in my life because I was given the Holy Spirit the moment I decided to follow Jesus. But it doesn't mean that I live my life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I still do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, instead of doing it how Jesus wants me to do it, when he wants me to do it. So we can have the Holy Spirit and not be filled and influenced by the Holy Spirit. And we read that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other reason why he's a hero in God's eyes. He was under the influence of Jesus. And I I can't read his entire story in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Go home today and read it. It's a, a tremendous story. But I want to tell us what happened after they chose him as one of the first deacons in the church. Stephen was performing great signs and wonders among the people. Until the members of the synagogue step in and they falsely accuse him of speaking lies against God. He is unfairly arrested and he's taken before the Sanhedrin. Think of like the supreme court of the Jewish people. So he's taken before the Sanhedrin, and he's accused of speaking lies against God unfairly. In return, he replies to the false charges with a long sermon. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts that declares these religious leaders miss the Messiah. I mean, he says point blank to these people, the prophets you believed in said God would send a rescuer, and when God sent Jesus, you murdered him. 
That's being full of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty bold. And these people, I mean, you can picture this, can't you? Put yourself in this situation. The religious leaders of the day, they're listening to this guy talk about their history and how they've missed the boat. And they keep getting a little more agitated and a little more agitated. And then in chapter 7, verse 51, if you're following along in your Bibles, Stephen calls them stiff-necked, bullheaded, and resisting the Holy Spirit. Not full of the Holy Spirit, but resisting the Holy Spirit. And we're told they were enraged. But I'm not quite sure they were ready to kill him yet. And then in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 58, Stephen says something that seals the deal for him. This gets him killed. I'm going to read 54 to 58 if you want to follow along. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. When he told them they were stiff-necked, bullheaded, and resisting the Holy Spirit, they were furious. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want to pay attention to verse 56. One sentence, Stephen said, Look, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this sent them into a frenzy. Because for this Supreme Court, for this Sanhedrin, what Stephen just said would have taken them back two short months to the trial of another prisoner that was accused of the same crime, speaking lies about God, before the same group, maybe even in the same place in Jerusalem. And though the council had brought in false witnesses, there still wasn't enough evidence to kill the prisoner. So the high priest finally asked, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus responded to them by saying this, and we read it in Matthew 26, you can see it on the screen. Jesus replied, you have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power, at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Stephen finishes his speech by saying, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen just verified that what Jesus had said was true. The words of Stephen became the first positive proof in Scripture that Christ had in fact ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now this Sanhedrin, they either had to make a decision to kill Stephen or to believe what Jesus had said to him two months ago. And they decided to kill Stephen. And so in the last moments of his life, and when people stoned others in biblical times, they would take them outside of the city, and they would throw them down, and they would encircle them and pick up giant stones and throw them at their head and break their bones, and they'd be bleeding. And in those final moments of his life, I'm not sure I would say that, this, but Stephen said two things. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus prayed before he died, 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the last words Stephen ever said on this earth, would you read them with me in your second gray box this morning? It says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus prayed on the cross in Luke 23, verse 34, would you read this with me on the screen? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Friends, Stephen was so influenced by Jesus. He was so under the influence of the Holy Spirit that he followed the greatest example of forgiveness the world has ever seen. Stephen knew the price Jesus paid to forgive him, and he wanted to follow Jesus' example. Just as it was for Stephen, if you're following in your notes, Jesus' forgiveness of us is our motive to forgive others. Jesus' forgiveness of us is our motive to forgive others. C.S. Lewis, an author the turn of the century, has, has a fantastic quote. Let me read it to you. He says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. I'm going to read that again. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a forgiver. It's just part of our identity. And that's because if you're following in your notes, forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Only forgiven people have any real motivation to forgive other people. If you are not a forgiven person, forgiveness might never make sense to you. It might be something you resist your whole life. The only reason forgiveness makes any sense is that we've been forgiven. This motivation to forgive is rooted in the story of us all. We were all created by God. Everyone here this morning, you were created by God, by him and for him. You are made in his image and the purpose of your life. If you're here wondering why you exist, it's to be in a relationship with God so that you can shine the light on him for other people to see. That is, that's why you exist. But all of us, every single person who's ever lived and every person here, we have all sinned. And we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. And the punishment that we have earned for our sins is death. Not just physical death now, but we are spiritually dead and eternally separated from God. And there is nothing we can do to get right with God again on our own. We can't give away enough money. We can't read the Bible enough. You can't join enough small groups. You can't come to church enough. You can't be good enough. Good people don't get to heaven. But if you're following in your notes, Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And this is the good news. It's, it's why it's called the good news, that the just and loving creator of the universe and the creator of you and me looked upon hopelessly sinful people. And he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and to show his power over death and the resurrection so that all who trust in him will be made right with him now and forever. 
Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And brothers and sisters, what this means is you don't have to earn being forgiven. Stop trying so hard. You are forgiven. If you trust in what Jesus did on the cross and you say, I admit that I have made bad decisions, I admit I'm a sinner, I want to turn from my sin and I repent and I turn to Jesus, I believe he died on the cross for my sins and I want to confess right now that he is the Lord and leader of my life, you are forgiven. We don't earn it. It's a free gift we're given. And what this means, what this means is that when we get to heaven, And we see God in all his glory. And we want to fall on our faces and say, God, how could I ever repay you for what you did for me? God will say, you don't owe me anything. Debt cancel. Debt cancel. That's our motivation. We have been forgiven. And now, if you're following in your notes... We are to forgive just as Christ forgave us. We are to forgive just as Christ forgave us. But this is where it gets really hard. This is so difficult. Forgiveness seems so unnatural and sometimes even impossible. Our natural reaction, it's to lash out and get revenge. It's to say, you owe me. I'm going to let you go free if I forgive you. I'm doing you a favor. If you're here this morning, you're going to have to deal with forgiveness at some point in your life because every relationship offers opportunities for forgiveness. Sometimes they are small offenses that easily pile up. Maybe your child says something that hurts your feelings. Maybe your spouse doesn't help around the house the way you would like them to. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic. Maybe your neighbor does something you don't like or he lets his dog come visit your yard and his dog does something you don't like or your grown children don't do what you wish they would do on the holidays. This leads to some low-level resentment that's just under the surface like Pastor Jeff talked about last week that if it's not dealt with is going to create bitterness and anger and resentment. And these small offenses, they just pile up. But you may be sitting here this morning, and you're saying, you don't know my story. And I I don't know your story. Maybe a friend has betrayed you. Your boss has misquoted you or doesn't give you credit for an idea that turned the whole company around. A husband or wife has broken their wedding vows, and you don't get to put your kids to bed at night because of what they've done. Your business partner stole money. A parent or a trusted adult has verbally, physically, or sexually abused you at some point. And maybe one of your family members has even been severely hurt or killed by somebody else. I fully understand in a room this size. I can't begin to know how some of you have been wronged. Some of you have been hurt in ways that I will never know. And whether the offenses are small or big, I think we don't want to forgive sometimes because of what we think that might mean in our lives. And so before we talk about what forgiveness is and how we can forgive, I want to dispel several myths of what I think 
we associate with forgiveness. And so I've left a little bit of space in your notes next to the line, biblical forgiveness is not. And so I just want to cover a few of these. Maybe you jot down one or two that, that stand out to you. When you forgive someone, it does not mean you condone or excuse the wrongdoing. You don't condone or excuse it. Don't say, oh, it wasn't a big deal. It was a big deal. It hurt you. You don't condone or excuse it. Forgiveness does not mean we're a doormat. By releasing somebody and canceling their debt, it doesn't mean we're a doormat and it doesn't mean we're going to be walked over in the future. I think we fear that sometimes. Forgiveness, it doesn't mean that we don't remember the past. I think sometimes we think, man, if I forgive this person, I can never remember what they did to me. And that is not true. Some things take time to heal. You're not going to forget about it. And in some cases, I'm not sure God wants you to forget about it because he will take your hurt and make you into the person he wants you to be on the other side of that. Forgiveness does not mean we have to forget. To go along with that, forgiveness does not mean that we trust the person in the same way again that we did before. It doesn't mean that we have to get together with them for dinner or coffee or have them over. It does not mean that. Forgiveness does not require that the person asks us for forgiveness. We can forgive without anyone ever asking us to forgive them. This is especially true if you've been hurt this morning by somebody who has died. There's no way you can talk to them face to face. They can't ask you for forgiveness, but you can still deal with forgiveness. Here's the last one for you. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reunion or that you're reunited with somebody. I think if reunion is possible, it is the best course of events. I really do. As far as it's concerned with you, be at peace with everyone. But hear me say this loud and clear. There are situations where it would not be advisable to be reunited with somebody. If there are legal matters pending or there has been abuse in the relationship, it may not be in your best interest to ever see that person again, but you can still forgive them. We don't forgive because all of these myths that go along with forgiveness. And so what I want us to see this morning, and this, this is huge, forgiveness is a decision. Can you, can you all just say this, this section with me? Forgiveness is a... Can, can you say that? Forgiveness is a... And now this section, forgiveness is a... And this section, lastly, forgiveness is a... Forgiveness is a decision. It is not based on an emotion. It is an act of the will. If it was up to our emotions, we would never forgive. If you're following in your notes, forgiveness, biblical forgiveness is a decision to cancel a debt. Biblical forgiveness is the decision to cancel a debt. And I say that, I thought about this a lot this week. Every time we're hurt, every time we're hurt, there's a sense that something has been taken from us. Think about that for a minute. Every time we've been hurt, every time we get angry, it goes back to this sense that something has been taken from us. And forgiveness is a decision that says, despite what you've taken from me, you have ruined my family, you've messed up my future, you took my childhood, your ex-husband or wife took from you the opportunity to finish what 
you started. Somebody took your money. Forgiveness is a decision that despite what someone has done to you or taken from you, you say, you don't owe me anymore. Debt canceled. And something happens when we say those words. Something happens. And this is was a huge learning for me. Forgiveness isn't so much about the person you forgive. Many, 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 many times, forgiveness has very little to do with the one being forgiven. Beth Moore has this great quote. It's, I can't even say it any better than this, so I put it as a line in your notes. She says, if you're following in your notes, forgiving doesn't make the offense all right. It makes you all right. Forgiving doesn't make the offense all right. It makes you all right. And that's because there is a freedom in forgiveness. The truth is, the one who doesn't forgive always, always suffers more than the one not forgiven. They may be off living their life, living it up, having a great time, not knowing how much we're hurt, and maybe sometimes not even knowing they hurt us. And we are stuck here in miserable, weighed down with bitterness, resentment, Anger and unforgiveness. Forgiveness, please hear this. Forgiveness makes us all right. It makes us all right. And so as we end today, I want to talk for a few minutes about how we can forgive. I have to imagine some people here, they want to forgive somebody. You know you need to forgive somebody, but you just don't know how you could ever do that. You want to get rid of the bitterness. You want to get rid of the anger. You want to get rid of the resentment. You want to get rid of the grudge because it is eating you up. And I just want to walk through four steps that I think could, could help us. I pray it would help us forgive. And let me say this. Maybe you think you can't do this on your own. And I would say you're right about that. You can't do it on your own. You can't forgive out of your own power, but if you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, if you say, Jesus, fill me today, I need to forgive somebody and I cannot do it on my own. You can have the courage to forgive. Number one, as we walk through this, embrace God's forgiveness for you. Embrace God's forgiveness for you. We gotta start here. That's our motivation, right? We need to start by looking to Jesus and remembering the debt he paid for us. Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you can forgive the way you've been forgiven. And let me say this, as we embrace God's forgiveness of us, I think there's somebody here this morning that probably just needs to hear this. You need to forgive yourself. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins, but you can't get past forgiving yourself. And you need to embrace God's forgiveness this morning. You don't earn being forgiven. You are forgiven. Embrace God's forgiveness of you. The second thing, we need to identify who we need to forgive. Who is it that we need to forgive? Who are you angry with? Who are the people you have been having imaginary conversations with? It's the person you want to come to you and say, I am so sorry. 
For some of you, it may be the person you're ignoring because you just want to put the hurt behind you, but it still has a grip on you. Who is it that you need to forgive? The third thing, determine what they owe you. And this may be the hardest part. You're going to have to spend some time here and think specifically about what they owe you and what they took from you. I mean, this just makes sense. Jesus didn't just die on the cross generally for my sins. He died for my specific sins. And so you need to determine what somebody owes you. You can't forgive a debt that you've never recognized. And the reason this might be the hardest part is because it might bring up some painful memories. But what did the person take from you? What did they rob of you? What is it that will never be a part of your life again? We have to answer the question, what specifically do they owe you? Maybe it's your childhood. Maybe it's your income, your reputation, your marriage, your children, your career, your job, your house, your dignity. Maybe it's just somebody didn't take you seriously. Maybe they took your self-worth and your self-respect. They just made fun of you. And it's leading to that low-level resentment just under the surface. What did they take from you? And then number four, help me out, forgiveness is a? It's a decision to cancel a debt. We need to decide to cancel it. Maybe you need to make a phone call today. Maybe you need to schedule a time to have coffee with somebody and Sit down with them face to face. If you can do that in person, that is the best way. But that's not always the best option. And if a reunion is not an option, here's a couple ideas for you. Maybe you just need to go and write a letter. And you need to put a cross on that envelope and bury it in the yard. Maybe you need to write a letter, seal it in an envelope, and on the front of the envelope, you just write, debt canceled. You put it in your Bible, put it in a drawer, put it on a mirror. And when you see that, you can remember your debt's been canceled and you've made a decision to cancel another debt. If somebody here has hurt you deeply and they are dead, maybe for you it's putting an empty chair in front of you and having a conversation with them that you have canceled their debt. Visuals are powerful reminders that we've canceled the debt. And let me say this. When we make a decision to cancel a debt, it doesn't mean that the pain or hurt will go away right away. And there's not something wrong with you if that doesn't happen. Sometimes it will. Many times it will not. I compare it to a deep wound on a leg. You can go to a doctor to be treated for it, but it's not healed immediately. But forgiveness is the catalyst that starts the healing. And so when the pain and the hurt come back, you... You can say to yourself, I've canceled that debt. I've canceled it. Now, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me remember that you canceled my debt and I can cancel theirs. You're just going to need to remind yourself that because the pain and the hurt may come back. And so let me ask you today, is there someone you need to forgive? If you're following along on your notes, it's the last question. Is there somebody you need to forgive today? Maybe it's just little things that have built up. Maybe it's something big. Is there somebody you need to forgive? Let me, let me speak to two groups of people as, as we wind down here. If you're here this morning and you're follower, if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I want to talk to you for just a minute. One of the biggest things I've learned 
while studying this week is how serious Jesus is about forgiveness. As a follower of Jesus, I have been pretty sloppy in the past with forgiving people. And this has been a wake-up call for how serious this issue is to Jesus. I've mentioned already that Jesus' forgiveness of us is our motive to forgive others. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there's even more writing on it. There's even more writing on it. It's difficult to live an effective Christian life with unforgiveness in your life. It's really hard to go from shallow to mature if you're holding on to this unforgiveness. And that's because it is impossible to be filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with unforgiveness at the same time. It is impossible to be under the influence of Jesus and not forgive somebody. And so you may be sitting there saying, wait, 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 wait. Hey, Brian, are you telling me that if I don't forgive somebody that I may not be forgiven by God? I'm not saying that. Jesus actually said that. In Matthew 6.15, Jesus says these words, But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. These words make me pause. They make me take an inventory of my relationships to make sure nothing has gotten sideways and to make sure there's no anger, resentment, or bitterness growing in me. And it makes me pay closer attention to my imaginary conversations. Jesus takes this business of forgiveness very seriously, and as his followers, we should too. Let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I... First of all, I'm so thankful you're here. I really am. Forgiveness isn't just a Christian thing. You get this. You've forgiven people in the past before. Everybody forgives in some capacity. But here's what I want to say to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. I don't exactly know how to help you because I know about myself that if I wasn't a forgiven person, I wouldn't be a very forgiving person. My only motivation is that I've been forgiven. And so I, I, I want to say to you, if there ever comes a time in your life where you get so sick of being angry and held hostage to people that you don't even like, if there ever comes a point where you throw your hands up and you say, I need to be saved from this bitterness and anger, I want you to know that God will be right there at that very moment. And when you turn to him, you will know what it means to be forgiven and you will be free to go forgive others. You don't earn it. It's given to you. So this morning, we don't slow down enough. I know I don't in my life. We just want to give you a minute to reflect on this issue of forgiveness. Maybe you just need to say to God during this minute, thank you for sending your son Jesus to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Maybe for you, you just need to say, fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning because I have been holding on to this junk for so long and I want to get rid of it and I need your help. And you might be here this morning just trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And maybe you just say that to God. God, reveal to me how big of a deal Jesus dying on the cross for my forgiveness was. Whatever you need to say, we just want to give you a little time to think about where you are with forgiveness.